Welcome to Healing with the Masters. We are so delighted that you've chosen to hang out with us for this series of speakers, inspirational wisdom, powerful affirmations, invocations, activations, prayer, and healing. Healing with the Masters represents transformation to ignite your light and to show you a framework of possibility for moving into a new way of being in your life, modeling that for others in your life, and changing the whole planet. Enjoy this powerful series. Now, if you're interested in joining us live, then just go to hwtmpodcast.com. That stands for Healing with the Masters, hwtmpodcast.com. Register there for the current season. And did I mention? It's free. Join us absolutely free. You just have to register. But for now, enjoy these shows because they created the most amount of transformation. They created the most amount of buzz, insights, and miracles of possibility. These are just as powerful as the day they were recorded. The vibration and energies are still present and available for you. And if you're listening to them, it's because you're ready right now. Know that you helped to create this content. Your desires and intentions have brought this very broadcast here before you. So listen, engage, and enjoy. And again, if you'd like to join us in our live season, remember to go to hwtmpodcast.com. You just have to register. Join us, experience the light, absolutely free. Now enjoy this show. Welcome everyone to Healing with the Masters. And we're here in Volume 13, and I want to welcome you to this powerful, powerful season this 2014 set of seasons is unique in that it's our second year of the Aquarian Age. And from all sources, it appears to be a year of let's get her done. <laughs> this is our sole group opportunity to commit to our journeys, engage in our lives, and in the process and together make a difference on this planet. We are delighted that you chose to hang out with us this season. And I want to remind you that you are beckoning forth all the content on this and every show of this season of Healing with the Masters. Your intentions have brought forth this very moment. So everything is here for you. That's what's so powerful about our Healing with the Masters community. You create the content through your intentions. I also want to remind you of the healing part of our name. It actually means transformation. It means realignment. It means repatterning. It means that you are not broken. Instead, you are on a pathway to change it all, and we're so excited at what you're about to create. Now, you may also think that the masters are the remarkable speakers that we bring on each week, but we also know that you are the master you are seeking. All of the answers are within you, and the master teachers you're hearing on this series are giving you nudges and hints as to who you truly are, that bright, sparking, sparkling being of light and love that you are. Now today, I am so excited to welcome our very, very special guest, Dr. Wayne Dyer. Dr. Dyer has been a huge influence in my life. He has um, really made a difference in so many people's lives on this planet. 
by truly being so authentic and using his life, I think, as a research tool to really allow what he's learned about his divinity to be shared with so many. He's an internationally renowned author and speaker in the field of self-development. He's authored over 30 books. He's created hundreds of audio programs and, and videos and has appeared on thousands of television and radio shows. His book, Manifest Your Destiny, Wisdom of the Asians, There's a Spiritual Solution to Every Problem, and the New York Times bestseller, 10, Ten Secrets for Success and Inner Peace, The Power of Intention, Inspiration, Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life, Excuses Be Gone, Wishes Fulfilled, and now his, his brand new book about his own light, I can see clearly now. It's a, a, a prolific writer, beautiful writer, that in every single book, has produced stages of expansion for all of those of us who have been participating in his life over these last many decades. He holds a doctorate degree in educational counseling from Wayne State University and is associate professor at St. John's University in New York. He's affectionately called the father of motivation by his many fans. Despite his childhood spent in orphanages and, and foster homes, Dr. Dyer has overcome many obstacles to make his dreams come true, and today he spends much of his time showing others how to do the same. Thank you uh, for joining us, Dr. Wayne Dyer, on Healing with the Masters. It's wonderful to have you back again. Thank you, Jennifer. It's great to be back with you, my dear. Mm, thanks. You know, I, I just enjoyed your book so much and enjoyed to hear um, the the creative process of of how you've kind of meandered through your life with divine intelligence at your back and taking the reins um, all the way through. Uh, you know, from the start, at the very beginning of, your, of the book, you start by, by sharing that attitude is everything. <laughs> and you seem to have this amazing attitude right out of the start gate. That, and as you looked around, even at your family, certainly at friends and definitely at coworkers, that that attitude was different within them. So what is this attitude, and, and why is it so important? You know, I don't even know the answer to that. I just know that it's, uh, it's, it's just, I've said it a million times, you know, when you change the way you look at things, you know, the things you look at do change. And, and that isn't just a, um, you know, a clever play on words. That's really a quantum truth, you know, that uh, one of the things that uh, quantum physics teaches us is that uh, the observer affects what they observe by the way that they observe it. Um, and how that works is, uh, is a mystery that people like Max Planck and Albert Einstein and, and so many of the greatest scientists uh, uh, wrestle with, uh, you know, throughout their lives and, they can, and continue to wrestle through it because it's the great mystery. But we we have within us the capacity to uh, observe uh, you know the world any way that we want to. Of off you know at the top of my stationery it says that the loving people live in a loving world and hostile people live in a hostile world, and it's the same world. You know so that uh, when when we when we <clears throat> practice uh, becoming the observer uh, and observing from a place of of what's inside of us, I mean. Throughout my speaking career, I started out many years ago, and I had an orange up there on the stage with me. I was in Toronto, and I was probably in my in my early 30s. And I held this orange up, and I said to the audience, you know, if if someone squeezes this orange, what will come out? And you know, it was a little boy who was about nine years old, and he said juice. And I said to him, I said, well, what kind of juice? 
And he, and he said, "Well, orange juice." I said, "Yeah." So you will never get uh, you'll never get apple juice out of uh, out of this thing, no matter how hard you squeeze it. And uh, and I, then I asked him the question, and he looked at me like I was just crazy. I said, uh, "So why is it that when you squeeze this orange, uh, you, it, uh, orange juice comes out?" And he looked at me, and he said. Well, that's what's inside. He said, that's what's got to come out. And I said, that's exactly the answer. You got it right. And he was so proud and everything. And I said, now I said, if someone squeezes you and uh, that is puts pressure on you or says something to you or about you that you don't like or whatever, and out of you comes uh, anger or comes uh, hatred or comes uh, you know rage or bitterness or or hurt or pain or tears or whatever it is, uh, why is it? Uh, I said, uh, they said, because that's what's inside. If you have that stuff inside of you and someone squeezes you, that's the only thing that can come out, just like with the orange juice. And uh, so that was, that became the whole basis of, uh, you know, what what do you have inside? What are you carrying around inside of you? And when you carry around inside of you a, a sense of appreciation and joy and love, and, and that's something that you can cultivate just simply by, by making the choice to do so. I don't know, I'm the father of eight kids, so I know that uh, each and every one of them came into this world with with a personality of some kind. I mean, some some of my kids were laughing right from the beginning, and some of them were sour, and some of them 18 years later were still sour, and, and the other ones are laughing. Uh, uh, and I have no idea why, you know, a child comes into this world uh, with, with, with an openness and a love and an excitement, and others come in with... Uh, you know, different kinds of personalities. But, but I do know for sure that we have within us the power to be able to decide what kind of a world that we're going to live in. And, and also that by making that decision, we can impact that world not only for ourselves, but, but for everyone else as well. Hmm. That's the best I can do with that question. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty darn good. <laughs> um, so the sour parts of us, um, mm-hmm. you know, as I read your book, I was thinking, boy, you know, I I am not, I have not really been, except maybe more recently, self-actualized. I know Maslow was a big influence on you and this notion of being sure self-actualized. Yeah. And, and, you know, is it possible for those of us who come into this life that are a little dour or are a little sour or, or, you know, really didn't have a lot of positive influences in our life, um, you know, again, some of us blame that. But there's something more going on here, isn't there? So how can we become self-actualized when we are coming from this place of dour or sour or not really seeing the, the possibilities? <clears throat> well, I think we can do that by just simply recognizing that it's a choice. And that's, mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the most important thing. That's the right. thing I attempted to teach all of my children is to recognize that, um, that you become what you think about. Uh, and it's one of the greatest secrets uh, you know, that, that there ever was. It's what Earl Nightingale made his entire uh, reputation on, this, what he called the strangest secret, is that uh, we become what we think about. Whatever, and, and our thoughts, well, you know, whatever we have inside of us, in that interior part of us that is uh, without form, I call it the soul, but it doesn't matter what you call it, uh, but this interior part that uh, you know has uh, you know the ability to have a desire and to have thoughts and and to process things in a certain way is something that uh, that we can train ourselves uh, to use you know for our benefit and uh, and for our health and for our happiness and for everything else. I mean, just before we went on the air, you and I were talking about uh, you know different kinds of, uh, of health approaches that we've taken. You know, because mm-hmm. you call you know your whole series is about healing and about health yeah. and uh, mm-hmm. and 
and I was talking to you about some of the crazy things I'm doing, like things with coffee enemas and, uh, you know, and, and, and checking out uh, different kinds of supplements and all of that. And for me, it's been a, it's just a lifelong process of, uh, of trying to understand what this body is and, and how it works and, uh, and what I can do to make it as healthy and strong as I possibly can and to keep it, uh, you know, functioning in a, in a way, because I, I treat it as my temple. Uh, and it's, it's just a, it's just a matter of, deciding what kind of uh, kind of life that you want to live and i decided it as a, as a very very young boy uh and when i wrote i can see clearly now i was really looking back at uh at so many of the of the circumstances and the people and the events and the things that showed up in my life and recognizing as i sit from this position now of being 73 years old that there was another force operating other than just my my ego just this this thing that I call Wayne Dyer and with all of its accomplishments and all of its bodily functions and all of that, that there's something else uh, that, uh, that we're all connected to and that something else is a, is a divine power and that it's operating at all times. You know, I, had a, I was trained early in my career. I was going to become a, a Jungian analyst. Uh, Carl Jung was just one of the great, great minds and great teachers of the 20th century. He, uh, he died when I was, I think I was 12 years old. I think it was 1952. Anyway, uh, Jung had this, uh, this real sense that there was a, you know, that there was a force in the universe. And he said, uh, something that I've never forgotten. He said, at the same moment that you're a protagonist in your own life and that you're making choices, at that very same moment, you're also the spear carrier or the extra in a much larger drama. And he said, uh, his conclusion to that was, he said that all of you, all, speaking to all of us, are doomed to make choices. And I always, I, I carried that around with me, you know, when I was studying uh, Carl Jung and all of his, his great teachings and so on, um, that we're doomed to make choices. It seems like such a paradox. If you're doomed, then there's no choice to make. If you're making choices, then you're obviously not doomed. But he said to, to examine it from two perspectives. One is from the, and that's what I've done and I can see clearly now. One of them, one of the perspectives is to look at your body and to say to yourself, okay, you showed up, you know, you happen to show up here in a very beautiful female body. I showed up in a, in a tall, uh, six foot two, uh, you know, male Caucasian body with blue eyes and with, uh, hair that's, uh, fallen out and growing in my ears and all of those kinds of things. All right. So in a sense, that's the, that's what I showed up at, uh, in this world. That's, uh, so in, in in one sense, he's saying you're doomed. You know, this is the body. I'm not going to get in this lifetime. I'm not going to be a female body. I'm not going to my my skin is going to be this color that it is. My uh, hair is going to grow the way it does, and so on. But within that context of all all of of being doomed by having this male body, this male Caucasian body, um, I also have many choices to make about this body. And I can decide, you know, what, how I'm going to treat it. I'm, how am I going to feed it well? What kind of supplements am I going to put into it? Am I going to exercise it? Uh, am I going to keep it in maximum shape? Am I going to allow it to get overweight? Am I going to allow it to become poisoned with certain kinds of uh, foods and, and eating too many sugars or putting too much alcohol in it or smoking cigarettes? or any? There's endless choices that I can make within this context of being stuck in this male Caucasian six foot two body that I'm in. Now, if you take that analogy and you extend it to the rest of your life, that is, you know, what, what you're here for, um, what your purpose is, 
um, what, you, what your thoughts are like, what your, uh, your, the development of your intellect, all of these kinds of things, you know, and, and all of the people that you're going to meet and so on, so that there's, there's a sense in which it's all laid out for us, all of it. You know, there's a dharma that is there, that is laid out for us. But we, so we're doomed in that sense, but we also can make choices. And the choices that we can make as we go through our life uh, to fulfill this dharma, to make course corrections in what it is that we're here for, if we're here to be a great artist, if we're here to be a writer like I have been, and to be a speaker like I have been, if we're here to be uh, an inventor like Thomas Edison, if we're here to uh, run an orphanage in uh, in Romania, you know, or whatever it is, or to be a Mother Teresa, whatever it is, we still have choices to make within that context of having it all laid out for us. So we have to live with these two opposing ideas within us. And the choices that we make are what I can see clearly is about we can we can decide whether or not we're going to um, w- whether we're going to be willing to do the kinds of things that are going to fulfill our our destiny whether we're going to have a, a sense of determination whether we're going to use fear or not in our life whether we're going to have compassion for uh, for the, the for ourselves and for other people and ultimately whether we're going to live from a place of love from divine love and all of these are lessons that um that I've had to you know, that I've had an opportunity to, to explore. So I really feel that the time from the moment that I was conceived, not only was my body and its physical self all laid out for me, so was everything else. But I can either, you know, grab a pen and sit down and do the writing or uh, get out there and do all of the promotional work in order to make your, your message get out there, or you can live with fear or not fear. So you're always making choices within a context of everything being handled for you. And you have to be able to live with these two opposing ideas within you at all times. And once you get that, then you, you know, you, you're, you're going to live what, you call, what, what Maslow called a self-actualized life. It's a long answer, but uh, you know, that's, that's the context in which I you know, have laid out, I can see clearly now. Yeah, and um, the, um, the, the self-actualized life is, I, I love that, that scene. Um, when you're with your, uh, when you had that fake midterm um, with one of mm. your professors, Dr. Chris Radel, he was a brilliant, yes. brilliant man. Yeah. Yeah, and and he, um, could you tell a little bit about that sure. story and and what yeah. he wrote on the chalkboard? Well, he was a very good friend of uh, Dr. Maslow, and he studied. He actually studied with uh, with Carl Jung. Uh, wow! Cool. <laughs> yeah, he was. Uh, you know, this was back in the 1960s, and he was uh, at that time. He was uh, about 70 years old. Um, he was a, he was the, the finest professor I ever had, and uh, this was at Wayne State University in the doctoral seminar. I had him for many many courses. I took every everything that had his name next to it in the in the in the course planning. I would sign up for. I just I you know. Um, and and he was teaching us about self actualization. What does self actualization look like? What does it mean? And we had this uh, seminar. There were only six of us in it. And uh, and he said that we'll have. Uh, and what we would do is we would meet every Thursday night for three hours, and we would go over case studies. We were all working with different uh, clients that we were working with, different patients, and then uh, and then we w- we would present them. Uh, and then he would give his analysis, and he was always just so brilliant. He was born in he was born in Austria in Vienna, and he escaped there um, just before uh, World War II when he was a young man. Uh, otherwise, he was going to be headed to the concentration camps. So I mean, this this guy had had really lived a very full life, and he would talk to us about what it means to be self-actualized. 
And then he said on uh, about the middle of the semester, uh, he came in and he said, this is going to be your midterm. And uh, he wrote up on the uh, on the blackboard, he, he told us this story. He said, uh, a self-actualized man arrives at a dinner party. And everyone he notices is dressed in... Um, in semi-formal attire, they're they're all wearing suits and ties, and um, you know the women are wearing dresses, and it's a, it's it's just everybody is all dressed up, and they're serving cocktails and so on. And this self-actualized man shows up in a with a baseball hat on, and a t-shirt, and a pair of dungarees and tennis shoes. And that's uh, and the question he asks is, what does he do? And he walks out of the room. He said, "This is your midterm. Uh, you have." I think he gave us like 20 minutes to write out what he thought this self-actualized person would do. So each of us took out our blue books. We all had them out there, and we had no idea what was going on. We'd never heard of an exam like this. And um, and we all wrote furiously about, well, he would uh, he would not pay attention to that. He wouldn't uh, he wouldn't leave. Um, he would uh, he would uh, he he would just go on as if nothing had happened. Uh, he wouldn't allow it to get himself upset. He was he was independent of, of the good opinion of other people, so therefore he would, uh, you know, he just wouldn't bring a lot of attention to it, and so on. And we all wrote this, you know, because we had been talking about self-actualized people as being independent of the good opinion of other people and detached from outcome, coming from a place of of inner knowing within, and so on. And um, then he came back into the room, and he had each of us, uh, we would read our answers, or our portions of our answers. And he feigned, in, in, like he was just really indignant about the whole thing. And <laughs> I, can, I can remember this as if it had happened yesterday, and this happened like back, I think, in 1965. So, uh, And he slammed his briefcase down on the table, and he walked out of the room, and uh, he said, uh, you all failed. You've all failed your midterm. And we all looked around at us all very puzzled. And, and he said, all you had to do is write uh, three words. And so we just sat there wondering what the three words were. And then he took out a, a piece of chalk and he wrote on the board, he wouldn't notice. And what he was trying to teach us is that self-actualized people, what he said, one of the characteristics of these people is that they see the unfolding of God in every one that they encounter and that they do not observe or notice or pay attention to um, appearances so that they wouldn't notice the color of a person's skin or how, how tall they were or whether they were male or female or what they were wearing. Um, they, they, didn't, they looked past all of that stuff. It wasn't even a part of their, their consciousness. And coming to that place where you just don't notice where you don't see, you don't identify people on the basis of the labels. He used to say to us that, uh, you know, quoting Soren Kierkegaard, the great Danish theologian, that once you label me, you negate me. Once you put any kind of a label on me, you know, you're you're older, you're younger, you're male, you're female, you're black, you're white, you know, whatever label you're putting, you're, you know, putting all these various labels on the, you know, you're neurotic, you're, you know, you're, and so on. Even the label of self-actualized is something that they would uh, just resist. So that self-actualizing people are people who not only must be what they can be, they have something inside of them that is a burning desire, but they don't go around judging anyone else on the basis of appearances or what they're, what they see with their, what they experience with their senses. 
And it was a great lesson for me, and it was one of the chapters I wrote about, and I can see clearly now, because basically this book is really nothing more than a, a look at all the significant events and circumstances and people and, and things that showed up in my life, that from this perspective of looking back at it, I began to realize that there was something bigger than me uh, moving all these pieces around and, and guiding me. And all I had to do was to make choices each and every way. Am I going to be willing to do it? Am I going to use fearlessness? Am I going to be determined? Am I going to hang on to my internal burning desire? Or am I going to say, it's too expensive, or I can't do that, or it would take too much time, or, and come up with some kind of an excuse that keeps you from fulfilling a dharma? that was laid out for you even before you were conceived. Yeah, you, you say, um, you quote um, um, the Course in Miracles, am I doing this from fear or love? Right. Um, and it's such a powerful theme throughout the whole book. And and you you seem to naturally move from a place of love, but you notice the fear. I mean, you've, there, there are aspects in, in, in when you describe these different chapters where, like for example, for example, the moment where you moved to, before you moved to New York, when you're making that decision and you talk with Doctor Doctor Millie, and Doctor Peters, um, yeah, Mildred Peters, yeah, Mildred, yeah, yeah, and, Millie Peters, uh, yes. Yeah, so, um, and she basically said, take the one that represents the biggest challenge, and that was your natural inclination. Inclination, but you had a moment that allowed you to see something a little different, and that you're actually disasterizing. That was your quote. The consequences, right, right. Um, uh, so yeah, and just share a little bit more about about. I just know so many of us that do this that we have an initial thought that's like, oh yeah, that's what I should do, and then we start mm. thinking of everything else um, than the initial thought, and not right. trusting that initial thought, and making crazy decisions that take us. And you also share in the book there are no bad decisions, but nonetheless. Mm. Uh, there are straight. There are no wrong. There are no wrong roads to anywhere. It's one of yes. the things that I wrote in there that, uh, you know, that this whole thing of this whole, you know, all of those what ifs. You know, you you just suggested. You know, you have a thought, and then you come up with all of the what ifs. What if? Uh, but if uh, and, and then yeah. the what ifs are all this uh, fear-based way that we have of uh, of living our lives. You know that. Uh, uh, w- what if it doesn't work out? What if I don't make enough money? What if it, it affects? What if I have to move and move to another city and I can't move and I can't? You know, what if I have to change jobs or, and all of those kind of things? When inside of us, there's this. Um, you know, you you all you of course you know who Napoleon Hill is, and uh, he yeah. you know he wrote this classic book uh, many years ago called uh, Think and Grow Rich, and and it's really not a book about um, about getting rich and making money. It's really a book about living a, a, a rich life, an enriched life. And he said that the distinction between people who live a fully functioning, what Maslow called self-actualized life, and, and the people who don't, what separates out extraordinary from ordinary, um, is one thing. He said the one thing that separates out the people who um, are able to live from a higher place and, and, and accelerate uh, their, their consciousness to move past ordinary into uh, what I'm calling extraordinary, is that they have something inside of them called a burning desire. And a burning desire is very different than a normal desire. Uh, a burning desire is something that's it's like, um, it's, it's like having an inner candle flame that just never flickers, though the worst goes before you. And it's like something that you just can't put out. Um, you know, for you know, for for some people, it's. Um, I mean, you you can't even tell what it is. I I tell the story on, on my radio show the other day of 
uh, I was I spoke in Abu Dhabi last year in, in the United Arab Emirates and in, in Dubai, and, um, and 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 at the at the end of my talk, a woman invited me to come out to a place called the Falcon Hospital um, in Dubai, uh, on the way to Dubai between Abu Dhabi and Dubai. And and I said, what 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 is it? And she said, well, uh, just come out, and I'd, I'd I'd love you to visit. It's like we have all these falcons out there. So, so I went out to this place, and uh, and the Falcon Hospital. I walked into this this little hospital out in the middle of the desert, and there was about thirty five or forty falcons uh, sitting on a on a post with a with a blind thing over their eyes to cover their eyes. And she was performing surgery out there, and she and she asked. I actually assisted her in doing surgery. And falcons in that part of the world are these amazing animals that are really responsible for the Bedouins' survival. The people who who are living, uh, you know, in the desert, uh, they, there's no food out there. The, the little creatures come out at night, and these falcons go out and hunt, and uh, whatever their prey they they get is what feeds the entire clan. Um, falcons in that part of the world can sit, uh, can have a get a passport, <laughs> and 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 they it's true they we actually had a falcon on the plane with a passport in a first class seat. Okay, I mean so there's, so there's this thing called falconry and all of this. Okay, so uh-huh. you probably know very very little about about as much as I knew about falcons yep. until I realized. I mean, let me ask you this, Jennifer: How fast do you think a, a falcon can fly? The I fastest? N- no, hundred miles an hour. 200 miles an no hour. No way, no 200 way. miles an hour. A falcon can go, <laughs> and, a, and a falcon can take down a small gazelle, you oh know, and gosh. which will feed that, you know. So anyway, so this, the reason I'm telling this story in response to this, you know, to our conversation here, is that when she was five years old, she saw a film about falcons when she was in Germany. She lived in Germany, a young five-year-old girl, and she absolutely had a knowing inside that this was going to be her life's mission, that she was going to set up a place where, because in that part of the world, people bring their falcons from all over the place. I mean, it's a very big uh, sport over there, you know, where they do hunting and all of that. And these, these animals are treated with great reverence, you know, because they're basically the, the providers for the food for the, for the entire group. At any rate, she, this was something that she had at the age of five, and I've never forgotten it. I mean, I spent three hours out there in that, in that falcon hospital feeding birds to falcons, uh, participating in surgery, watching these things fly through the air and so on. And I was thinking, this was like, this is a burning desire. This is something that she had inside of her that she absolutely knew that she had to fulfill. It was a dharma. That, and, and it's like, now... She could have been dissuaded from that, perhaps, by having parents who said, you know what, you know, you, you got a little obsession with falcons, but this is ridiculous. You know, you can't make a living, uh, you know, doing this. And somebody might have told you that about your, about your inclination to be a great artist or to be a great musician or to be a writer or to, you know, like I say, to run an orphanage someplace or to be, to, you know, to raise horses, whatever it might be. There's this, like, this excitement, this thing that's inside each and every one of us. And the question... That you have to answer, and what I tried to answer as I wrote this sort of semi-memoir a book of mine about all of these different things, there's always been a knowing that I've had inside of me that I was, you know, that I was destined to write and that I was destined to speak before audiences, and that um, and that it was about self-reliance and about teaching that and so on. And it didn't make any difference. No one was able to take that out of me when I was in the, you know, the ninth grade in high school. 
I used to, I used to get paid. I was a professional writer. I used to write book reports for my friends, you know, and and charge them twenty five cents each, and guarantee that if you, if you don't get at least a B, you don't have to pay, uh, because I was reading everything at that time, and 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 you know, I don't know. It sounds like an I shouldn't have been doing that. It was wrong, but I did a lot of stuff I shouldn't have been doing. Uh, but if, <laughs> I've always had a knowing inside that. I could write, and it didn't matter. I could take any course that there was, as long as there's going to be an essay question at the end on any subject. I would be able to write my way through and be able to to, to do well. It was just it was just a gift that I was given. Mm-hmm. But I could be told also, you can't make any money writing. It's uh, it's a very d- a tough discipline to have to do, and and uh, and and you've got to get out there and do other things, you know. So you should get a, you should try to get a job at General Motors or at Chrysler because I grew up in Detroit. Uh, or you can feel within you that this internal knowing is something that I absolutely have to do, and you can pick up your paintbrushes, or you can sit down and, and play your music. Um, or, you know, I have one daughter who is just obsessed with horses, and she's, uh, you know, she's now working and training and working with horses, and she knew that when she was six or seven years old. And who am I to tell her, well, you can't make a living, you know, doing that, and, you, you know, you can't be a competitive uh, horse person. and we all have something inside of us that just speaks to us and says, "This is what we're here for." And if you, you can either, you can either say, "Okay, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I'm determined that nothing is going to stop me. I'm going to do it without, with an absence of fear." And this is what we were talking about: this whole concept of of, of removing the fear from our lives. As you probably know, I wrote about in here that you know I had a diagnosis of leukemia. Uh, three or four years ago, and I had an experience with John of God down in Brazil, and that we've talked about before on, on this uh, here, and that I've talked about on television and so on. And I think what happened for me when I had that experience with John of God and that healing is it wasn't so much that they um, that they healed me of the leukemia; it was that they removed these entities, removed the uh, the fear, um, which is around the word leukemia, isn't it? I mean, the word cancer. And leukemia, and yeah, uh, you know, these these are words that just generate you know, this you know this fearful response into our bodies, and our bodies at the cellular level begin to take these things on, and we have to remove that fear and replace it with something called love, and that's what happened to me after I had the experience with John of God, is that I went from uh, a person who uh, <clears throat> was subconsciously living in some kind of fear. Uh, even on the basis of the way that I was eating and, and conducting my life, uh, and um, they removed that fear, and and, and a, heal, a great healing took place. And I was overwhelmed with the kind of of love that I speak about a lot in uh, these days, something called divine love. So. Yeah, and so this uh, this divine love was part of your has been part of your whole life, and and. And each moment ha- it feels like is taking you a step closer and a step closer. I mean, uh, two two things that that I think about that I, I love so much that really resonated with me personally is when you were a young, uh, uh, like a ten, ten, eleven year old, and you were having challenges with a, a, a project about um, making leaves in biology, uh, making a leaf project that was useless, didn't have any point. Right. One of the things that you said um, around that chapter in that part of your life is speak with confidence and in a not and with kindness, with confidence and in a non-judgmental way. And two, 
that there's a secret garden within where miracles and magic abound, which is mm. you know kind of based on that book that you read at the time. But I, just those two things could be just posted on my mirror every morning. Mm. Speak with confidence, kindness, and nudge in a non-judgmental way, and tap into your own secret garden where the magic is is there. Um, I, I'm actually getting a little emotional as I share. It was such mm. a, a, a a moving moment for a ten year old. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, Jennifer. It was. Uh-huh. Um, and, and I look back on it now. See, while it was happening, I didn't yeah. have any idea that this was this was. It's like uh, I often have said. I've used this example that. Uh, before I was even conceived, I always have, I say I had this imaginary conversation with God. And God said to me, what do you want to do on, on this incarnation? You know, you're, you're going to get so many years. What would you like to do this time around? And I said, well, I think I would really like to spend this entire lifetime teaching self-reliance. Yeah. And God said, you want to spend a whole lifetime? Are you sure you want to spend a whole life just teaching this? <laughs> you know, your whole, I said, yes, that's what I want to do. And then God said to me then, well, we better get your little ass into an orphanage. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and, <laughs> and, there uh, you go, right? <laughs> and, you know, and we're going to put you there for a decade or so. And then when you're in that, uh, in that orphanage for 10 years, um, you're going to learn about self-reliance because there's not going to be anybody else there for you to rely on. There's no parents there and so on. And you're going to have someone else to help as well. You're going to have your, your older brother, but he's sicker and he's smaller and he gets bullied a lot. So you're going to have to take care of him as well. So, um, so I mean, I kind of look at everything in life that way because what you're mentioning there about the secret garden, when I was 10 years of age, my mother, my mother got her family back together again. My mother had three boys by the time, uh, you know, she was 22 years old, uh, under, all under the age of four. Uh, and my father just walked away and abandoned his, this, uh, this woman and her three children, and I was the youngest of those three children. And and so he just he just disappeared and just so my mother at that time that was during the Great Depression I was born in 1940 my brothers were born in 38 and 36 worldwide depression a world war was just starting when I was just one years old um, and so um, so I was placed in a series of foster homes and orphanages until for 10 years my mother worked and tried to figure out a way to get her family back together again. But she had no money, and her family had no money, I mean, her parents and so on. It was just a very poor time in the city of Detroit. And she finally met somebody and remarried, uh, I always say remarried my father in a different body, another alcoholic, yeah. abusive, yeah. bad dude um, but that she stayed with for five years. And so so I'm now I'm 10 years old, and I'm living with my brother, uh, who I've been with all those years, my brother David, and I meet my oldest brother, Jim, that I didn't even know. I didn't even know him. I knew I had a brother, but I didn't. I don't even remember ever meeting him. So he's like 14 by this time. He'd been living with my grandmother all those years. So now I'm living with my mother, my father, my stepfather, and my three, and my two brothers. There's five of us in a tiny little duplex on the east side of Detroit, and I'm going to school for the first time uh, with you know living with this family. And a little bit terrified that I'm going to have to go back to the orphanage. Um, I don't know if terrified is the right word, but uh, certainly mindful of the, of the fact that uh, I could go back because I always we always had to end up going back because there was just never enough money and so on. And I'm in the classroom, and I had been in a different class every year uh, of my life uh, in those days uh, because I just kept moving from one foster home to the next to the next. And... Um, 
and I'm at I go to Arthur Elementary School. We have a teacher there. Her name is Mrs. Ingalls. And every day at three o'clock, um, for the last half an hour or so of the class, she would read to us from a book if the class was good, if they behaved, if they didn't make a lot of noise and give her a hard time. So I became I loved this book so much that I became like the enforcer in the classroom. If anybody started talking, I would go over there and tell them to knock it off. Uh, you know, and I just gotten kind of ballsy, I guess, just being, you know, having moved around as much as I did when I was a yeah. kid. And, uh, and so I became literally the enforcer in that because the book that she was reading was called The Secret Garden. And it was a book that was written in 1909, and it was about a little girl who was 10 years old. Her name was Mary, and she was an orphan. And she was terrified of having to go back to the orphanage. And she had two friends uh, with her. Dickon was one, and Colin was the other. I remember this. You know, this, we're talking 60, 70 years ago now. Um, and and I, I can remember walking home up Peerless Street to my home on Moross Road on the east side of Detroit and thinking about the secret garden and about the attitude that this one kid that had in there, I believe it was Dickon, who was just very positive. He didn't want to ever talk about anything negative. And Colin was the one who was always afraid and just was worried about everything and so on. And Mary was this little orphan girl who was just cultivating this friendship with the with the young boy who was was being happy and basically saying that uh, this is not a book about a garden that has a secret door that is interesting even though it's presented that way it's about a recognition that within each and every one of us there is a secret garden and this secret garden is something that is so powerful and when you go there and enter there and do it through your mind that you can create anything. You can heal yourself of an illness. You can bring abundance into your life and so on. So this was this was like my earliest memory of uh, why was I in this class listening to a story about a little orphan girl, who and I was a little orphan boy, 10 years old, at the same age and everything, and... Um, and I, you know, I've written 42 books uh, in in my lifetime, and and all of them uh, are about a secret garden, about this secret place within us. That if you learn to how to access it and to go there, and then Jennifer, uh, two uh, years later, um, my stepfather, who was a very bad alcoholic, uh, my mother was getting close to divorce with him. Uh, on Tuesday nights, we would watch a, t- a television show. We had a tiny little black and white Admiral television. And we would watch, uh, th- there was a show that was very, very popular at that time. It was called the Milton Berle Show. You're, I'm sure, too young to remember it. Uh, I remember but, uh, the Milton Berle <laughs> Show, sure. <laughs> yeah, it was a Tuesday night, Mr. Texaco, and all of that kind of stuff. But we didn't watch Milton Berle at my house because my father wanted to watch this guy. His name was Bishop Fulton Sheen, who was on opposite Mil- Milton Berle because there were only three stations at that time. And his, he had a show called Life is Worth Living. And I used to sit there and take notes every Tuesday night on a show called Life is Worth Living. And I couldn't wait to go there. And, I mean, Bishop Sheen became, I mean, I just loved his stories, and he dressed in this funny costume, and I just thought it was all so strange and everything. And yet, there I was at the age of, now, at the age of 10, I'm I'm obsessed with a book called The Secret Garden. Mm -hmm. At the age of 12, I'm listening to a show, taking notes, when everybody else in the country is watching Milton Berle, in fact, Milton Berle was asked a question because Bishop Sheen uh, was uh, was given the Emmy Award at that time. It was the very first year of the Emmys, and they didn't give it to him. They gave it to Bishop Sheen because his show, they said, was better. And they asked Milton Berle how he felt about that, and he said, well, 
He said he kind of cheated. He's got better writers, you know, Matthew, <laughs> Mark, Luke, and John. Now, how am I supposed to compete with that? <laughs> but I mean, there, and those are two examples that I tell at the very beginning of my life mm-hmm. in which, you know, I was doomed to make choices. Yes, I had this sense of being doomed, and this, but I also had choices to make. And it was like here it was presented before me. Now you can watch Bishop Sheen and, and take notes on it and get intrigued by it. Or you can just say, oh, that's just a bunch of junk with a guy who's dressed in a funny costume, and I don't want anything to do with that. Or you can not pay attention to the, uh, the secret garden. But there was something inside of me that was, that was determined, that had a burning desire. And each experience in my life, and, I, and the thing of it is, I didn't write this book to write a memoir or to write a, uh, you know, an autobiography. It's not an autobiography at all. I left a lot of stuff out that I just didn't want to talk about. <clears throat> what I did is I wrote it for everybody who reads to look at and recognize that in every moment of your life, there are things that are being laid out there before you to help you to fulfill this dharma because there's no accidents in this universe. It's, it's, it's supported by a divine force that's in everything, and it's in you, and all you have to do is recognize that and see every moment that you have is an opportunity to fulfill uh, what it is that you came here for. Or you can just say, oh, I can't do that. It would be too expensive, or it would just take too much time, or you can't make any money. I mean, how many times I heard people tell me, you can't make any money as a writer, and certainly if you're going to be a school teacher, which is what I was for many years, you can't make any money as a school teacher. And I've made millions and millions and millions of dollars as a school teacher. Um, not because I'm better than anybody else, but because I was willing, or because I was determined, or because I would not allow... Uh, anything to interfere with this burning desire that I've always known was a possibility. And the money is just an irrelevant part of it because you don't, when you're a writer, you don't sit down and write because you're going to get, make money. That's all something that comes afterwards. You know, you write yeah. because your heart tells you this is what you're here for. And you talk about that a little bit in the book that you've seen authors who are more, very much focused on, um, the, the, on the achievement and on the money versus the, the kind of service. And yeah. it, it, that's a different way to look at things as well, isn't it? That well, that's what that's what. Part. Yeah, Maslow said that you know as he defined self-actualizing people, people who mm-hmm. he said that there are basically these are the major characteristics. That one is that they're independent of the good opinion of other people which means that they don't do things in order to get the approval of others. They do things because this is what their heart tells them. But more important than that, he says, is that they are detached from outcome, that they don't paint because they're going to sell a painting. They don't write because they're going to sell a book. They 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 listen to something inside of them that says, this is what I'm here for, and I'm aligned with that which excites me, because the word, you know, the word enthusiasm in, in Greek, uh, entheos, means God. Yasm means within. Hmm. Enthusiasm means the God within. When you find your excitement, the thing that really makes you feel like I'm on purpose now in my life, whatever it might be, even if you can't make a living at it or whatever, but if it just makes you feel so purposeful when you're there, you know, like uh, it might be just gardening. It could be anything that you just feel that this is what I'm, you know, this is my journey this is what i'm incarnated into this world for when you connect to that your excitement the reason that it excites you is because it 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 really aligns you with who you truly are you know you're not this body and it's ego and all of its accomplishments you're this infinite being this piece of god 
And, and, and once you feel that excitement, and then you do things from that excitement, and then, and then the, you know, as I've often said, the greatest definition of success that I've ever heard is from, uh, from uh, uh, Henry David Thoreau. I'm reading a biography of his life right now. Mm-hmm. Thoreau said at, at, in his essay on the, on, the, on the necessity of civil disobedience, he said, when you advance confidently in the direction of your own dreams and endeavor to live the life which you have imagined, you will meet with a success unexpected in common hours. That is, it will chase after you as long as you are paying attention to your dreams and your imagination, whatever you're imagining. And that's the greatest gift that you've been given. And self-actualizing people just don't do what they do because of some reward that's going to come their way, because of some grade that they're going to get, or because of some gold watch they're going to get at the end of their life or whatever. They do it because internally they know, as Maslow used to say, self-actualizing people must be, they must be what they can be. It isn't like it's any longer a choice. It's like I know that this is something that I can do and have to do, and I must I must be that. And I've felt that a lot in my life, that sense of this is something I have to do. It isn't... Uh, yeah. Dependent upon other people. Yeah, there's this part of me that that as I was reading through it, and and I've experienced this in my own life. It's it's not you know even the the manifesting the creative visualization. It to me from some of the stories you tell, it's less about um, you actually holding a vision to make it come true than the vision comes to you as part of this burning desire. I I think about the 14 year old. Who um, who was watching the Tonight Show um, that no one else in the family knew in the quiet wee hours of the morning with the volume way down, um, and um, pictured yourself on the Tonight Show that eventually then created years later, uh, decades later, three appearances, which is a crazy story in itself. Three appearances in five days on the Tonight Show, oh, the Tonight which, Show. which launched you. So, right. and and I, I mean, it it feels very true that somehow that fourteen year old did create that. But did the 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 image was it just part of that burning desire, or was it something that you actively did, or is it a combination of both? I think it is. I think it's a combination of all of mm-hmm. it, Jennifer. It, it's, uh, you know, that. There was just something inside of me. Now that the, the intriguing part about that story is that I, yeah, I, when I was 14 years old, watching the Tonight Show late at night, when my two brothers were sound asleep and my mother was asleep and my my stepfather was out drinking someplace, um, I would uh, <clears throat> I would watch the Steve Allen show. Uh, and Steve Allen had all of these crazy characters on there, Louis Nye and, uh, you know, and uh, Steve Lawrence, all of this, uh, you know, the, the people that w- were launched, uh, you know, way back when The Tonight Show was just beginning. And I used to watch Steve Allen every night. <clears throat> he was, a, he was to me, one of the most po- great geniuses because he could just do everything. And he was just so quick and, and just fun. I don't know, just funny. And, and he'd written a lot of books, wrote a lot of music and so on. Um and I used to, when when he'd be talking to a guest, and the guest would say something that, or uh, uh, the, the question wasn't right or something, I would say, you know, if I was sitting there on the show, I would answer it. And sometimes I would even participate. I'd feel like I was a part of the show. Well, the first time I ever did the Tonight Show, I was uh, I was on with the the host was Shecky Green, uh, and it was on a Monday night. It was the same night as the Republican National Convention in 1976 in Kansas City it's amazing how I remember this and uh 
And I thought, you know, this was the greatest opportunity. It was a Monday night. Johnny Carson didn't do the shows on Monday night. And um, I came out, and it was, uh, you know, we had a really great show and all of that. And the very first guest on that very first show was Steve Allen. Wow. Uh, (laughs) And and I walked in. They had a bank. It was at Burbank. It was the NBC Studios in Burbank, California, and they had a bank of phones. And and Steve Allen was on, on the end, and he was talking to his wife, Jane Meadows, because I heard him say Jane. And it was, his wife was Jane Meadows. Uh, and so I took the phone next to him, <laughs> and I called my wife and, uh, and my daughter, who was nine years old at the time, and I said, you're not going to believe who's next, who I'm talking, who's next to me, who's going to be the first <laughs> guest on the Tonight Show tonight. And uh, and my wife said, well, who? I said, well, listen, and I took the phone and I put it over next to Steve Allen talk, uh, talking to him. And I said, do you recognize that voice? I mean, that's how bad I was. <laughs> and my wife said, oh, my God, that's, that's Steve Allen. I said, that's, that's who I used to watch when I was 14 years old and say I'm going to be on with Steve Allen. So there I was meeting Steve Allen on the show with Steve Allen. Um, and the intriguing part of that, and the rest of that story that I tell in the book, mm-hmm. is that that was on a Monday night, and then I, I flew back to Detroit and uh, to meet with my wife and, and my daughter and, uh, and to tell everybody that I'd been on The Tonight Show, and I get a telephone call that said the show was going to be preempted because Bob Dole, who was uh, giving the keynote address at the Republican National Convention, in 1976, went over, and they decided to go with that. It was the first time that The Tonight Show had ever been preempted. And so there I thought, oh, my God, I went, I flew all the way out there. I did the show, and now it's not going to even air. It turns out that the next day, on Tuesday, Johnny Carson came in, and he heard about this guest that was on the night before, this psychologist who was talking and was funny or whatever, and he said, well, you know, before they re- they do show that preempted show, he said, I'd like to have him on first. Um, he said, do you think he could come in and do the show tomorrow night? And they flew me all the way back from Detroit, all the way back to L.A. I flew back on a Tuesday. I flew back there again Wednesday, and I did the show with Johnny on Wednesday night. And uh, And Johnny apologized to me. He said, oh, we didn't give you very much time. We only had about five minutes left. We ran over. He said, would you mind staying over till Friday and come back and we'll 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 pick up on this with it was a book I had written called Your Erroneous Zone. So I came back on on Friday and then on Monday they reshowed the show from the previous week, the preempted show, and without having any national attention, by just going out there and just doing what I really knew I had to do, which was to reach everybody in America by getting in my car and going from city to city and station to station and uh, doing interviews all the time. Um, And it goes back to Thoreau's uh, definition of success. He said, again, if you advance confidently in the direction of your own dreams, which is what I was doing, driving across the country with my nine-year-old daughter, having the time of our lives, going from city to city to city, doing local shows, if you advance confidently in the direction of your own dreams and endeavor to live the life which you have imagined, and that was the life I had left behind my professorship, my tenure at a university, my guaranteed job, to live the life that I imagined, he said, you will meet with a success unexpected in common hours. That is, three Tonight Show appearances in five days. I could never have dreamed it or planned it. Uh, It just all worked out that way. And from then on, the rest of you know my career as far as being you know reaching people at a national level 
um, just began to, I, I was, all the shows that before that were saying no to me, like Mike Douglas and Merv Griffin and Diana Shore and all of these shows, all of the Good Morning America, the Today Show, all of them started calling me. Mm. And, um, and that isn't just because I'm Wayne Dyer and some special person. It's because I was advancing confidently and this, this was my dream to go out and share this common sense approach that was in this book called Your Erroneous Sound, and it was in my imagination to live this way rather than as a tenured professor, you know, doing the same thing year after year after year and then retiring in the same building with the same office. It was like the and And Jennifer, the day that I w- uh, resigned from the university is another one of those quantum moments, one of what mm-hmm. Maslow called peak experiences. I was driving down the Long Island Expressway, and I was on my way into the university at St. John's University in Queens. And something was so overwhelming, it just pulled me aside. And and I had to actually pull over uh, on the expressway because it was, uh, it, it was just so overwhelming. I mean, I was really uh, in the arms of something that was just saying, uh, you, you've got to do this. And I sat there for about 15 minutes just on the, on, on the side of the uh, expressway. And I got back on the road. I drove into New York City. I went up to Marillac Hall, walked up the stairs to the second floor, walked into Dr. Uh, Fassenmeyer, Sarah Fassenmeyer. And I said to her, I have to resign. I said, this is going to be my last semester. I'm going to take this book that I've written, and I'm going to take it to the world. And she pleaded with me. She said, you know, you, you are a star here. You've written three textbooks. I mean, you've just you've been promoted. You're going to get tenure next semester, you know, you, which was like tenure. I mean, that word just scared the hell out of me. It was like, <laughs> you mean I'm going to be here for the rest of my life in this office, in this building, teaching these same courses? I don't think I can do that. And it was that moment, that, uh, that overwhelming uh, contact that I had with something divine, something spiritual that said, you've got to take the risk. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to let go of, of this, what's called certainty and this guaranteed employment and go out there and, uh, and it was one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. Um, it's, it's once again illustrates over and over and over again that the, the guidance within you overcame the, the, practical quote-unquote realities that many of us um, stay with because of fear. I love, I love your quote. I think this is a roomy one. Fear knocked on the door, love answered, and no one was and there. And no one was there, right. <laughs> yeah. and, and that's kind of, I mean, throughout the whole book, throughout your life, and throughout everything you teach, you're, you, especially in the last you know, five years or so, it's about love. So, it's a, it's about something called divine love, which is, divine which is love. very different than human love. You yeah. know, Peter Dunoff, the great Peter Dunoff, who was a Bulgarian spiritual master, of whom Albert Einstein said uh, when he was at the t- peak of his pers- of his popularity, uh, Einstein said, "The whole world bows before me, and I bow before Peter Dunoff." And Peter Dunoff <laughs> wrote 250 books on divine love on different kinds in Bulgarian. And he was the one who was responsible for for no Jews uh, being uh, transported to uh, uh, to the very to Auschwitz and, and Dachau and Buchenwald and all of these horrible places where they were exterminating people because of their religion. He uh, <clears throat> he he personally was uh, had had the vision of of stopping the trains from uh, sending the, the people who had been packed on the trains and and contacting the uh, the uh, 
the, the what was his name? I can't remember his name now. The, uh, the, the it's the first one person I have whose name I haven't remembered in this whole thing was. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, he 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 was the the one that was in charge of Bulgaria. You know, he was the czar. He, they had their own czar in Bulgaria, and he was in hiding because the Nazis had occupied Bulgaria. And Peter Dunov, who was this divine spiritual master who was born in 1864, in the middle of our civil war, and died in 1944 when I was four years old. And in 1943, he told them where the Tsar was, was in hiding, and he just knew it from his consciousness. And they went to the Tsar, and the Tsar said that he would not give permission for those trains uh, to, to, to send the people who had been boarded to be go to, you know, all the Jews uh, who had been uh, boarded there in, um, in Sofia. Uh, and not one Jew during the entire World War II uh, was sent to a concentration camp from Bulgaria. It was the only country because of this, this, this the intensity of this man. And he said that uh, there are three kinds of love. He said there's there's uh, human love, and human love is a kind of love that changes, and a love that changes, and and a love that varies. Um, so that you know, I love you today, but not as much as yesterday because you forgot my birthday, and you know, <laughs> and you weren't as nice to me, and you were flirting with somebody else. And this is the kind of love that changes, and that sometimes it's high, and some days it's low, and so on. He said that's one kind of love. Then he said there's a thing called spiritual love. And spiritual love, he said, is a love that uh, never changes. It's like the love you have for your children or for your parents and so on. No matter what they do or whatever, the love is still there. But it uh, it does vary. Sometimes it's stronger than others and so on. But he said divine love is a different kind of love altogether, and it's one that I aspire to. Uh, and this is a love, he said, that never changes. And it's a love that never varies. It's like that's all you have inside of you. It's the, it's the love that our source has for us. And when we are able to live from that place of a love that uh, that is changeless and that uh, it, it is always consistently, uh, you know, one way only, when we are able to live from that kind of a love, then um, we'll understand what it means to be truly self-actualized and aligned with our source of being. And then, and with that kind of love, you know, Jesus said it. He said, with that kind of love, all things are possible. And that leaves nothing out. All things are possible leaves nothing out. And we can, um, uh, one of the recommendations you made, you make in the, at the end of the book and the after, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but after the book ends and you wrote an <laughs> afterword. Um, right, the afterword, right. Yeah, there it is. That's the word. <laughs> See, I forgot right. one too. There, so we're <laughs> That's um, allowed. <laughs> Um, it, it is this, um, I, and I notice, you know, you talked about the um, the person uh, you are now talking to, the 20 year old who was upset with the D that they got in a in a, um, oh, in a yeah. class, mm. and and you, you you talk with a great affection for um, the parts of you that that uh, lived from your ego, and um, that that that's the kind of love that we can. That is divine love when we can go back and. And love those bits of us, and love how those bits of us are still. And you talk about this too, how some of those bits of us. You talk about memes a little bit. That there are these bits of us that are just unconscious behavior, protection mechanisms, and so on. That if we simply love them, if we simply love those parts of us that get upset, those parts of us that are an ego, that this divine love can change it all. Right. Well, we we see we emerged from this. This is what we what we came from. The great mm-hmm. poet Hafiz is a, one of my favorite poems. He says that even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, "You owe me," 
just think what a love like that can do. It lights up the whole world. You know, it's like uh, we can, that's what we came from. It's a, it's a love that is called oneness. You know, it's a love that, you know, it's like everything in the physical plane has a duality to it. It's a dichotomy. It's, you know, you, the only reason we have a concept of up is because we have a concept of down. The only reason we have a concept of right is because we have a concept of, uh, you know, of, of wrong, uh, male and female. But in the book of, in the Gospel of St. Thomas, Jesus is quoted as saying, you know, that it's when, when you make the two one, it is only then that you will be able to enter the kingdom. So now you have to try to imagine a, a love that has no opposite, because uh, opposites are what define this physical realm that we're in. You know, it's like uh, everything is into a dichotomy. Even the Bhagavad Gita teaches us, you know, to transcend these dichotomies, to find oneness. So you have to try to imagine. Um, I often give in my talks. I give a, a, a metaphor of a. I say, supposing that you lived on the sun, you know, that you had a house on the sun, right? Um, and <clears throat> would there be? Would you ever have a concept if you lived on the sun of, uh, of 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 darkness? Would you ever know what darkness was? You know, could you ever would would anybody on the sun talk about darkness? And the answer to that, of course, is no, because there is no such thing as darkness because on the sun, because the sun is the source of all light. So that when you are with the source, you eliminate all opposites, and there's only oneness. There's only light. That's all there is. Twenty-four hours a day, forever, is just always light. So now you move to the source. You know, it's like I said. Try to imagine what is the opposite of joy. If you say sadness, I said, try to imagine when you leave your body that you'll be in a state, a dimension of consciousness in which there is no opposite. It's just joy, only joy. And now try to imagine love, which is uh, the source of all love, is our source of being. God, the Tao, the divine mind, whatever you want to call it. You know, in the Tao, the Ching, they say that the Tao that can be named is not the Tao. So as soon as you put a name on it, you've lost it because now you've got two-ness. You've got the thing and the name for it the symbol and what it's what it's symbolizing and you have to really try to move to just oneness so just like the sun has no darkness on it and love uh you know when you're with your source of being there is no opposite it's just pure love and if you talk to people who've had near-death experiences as i know you've had and i i wrote the forward to a book of a woman named anita morjani who wrote a wonderful book called dying to be me um, and she said the experience that she had when she was in that other dimension was an experience of just just pure love. There was nothing opposite of it. There was no hate. There was no anger. There was no rage. There was no fear. There was just simply love. That's what oneness is, and that's what you will know when you come to the uh, when you come to know the your, your source. You know, T. S. Eliot said it. He said, "You shall not cease from exploration." But at the end of all of our exploring will be to return to the place from which we originated and to know it for the first time. And knowing it for the first time means knowing that there is no opposite. You know, there is all of this stuff that we've taken on as human beings, all of these dichotomies are transcended and we all become one. And that's what basically what I what I strive to be is living from a place of divine love, a love that has no, you know, has no barriers and it is uh it is always it is always there and it never changes and it never varies and i must say i'm i'm better at it but i still find myself you know uh 
in that ego state of, of, of judging it. Yeah, and that's part of the paradigm of being human, isn't it? That we get to continually play with knowing it deeper and deeper right. and deeper. So, but, um, but when we go into our silence, though, Jennifer, when we go yeah. into silence and meditation, that's one of the great lessons in my life. You know, is mm. that in silence you can't divide, you can't cut silence in half. Silence is like zero. You cut it in half, <laughs> yeah. you still got the same thing. You multiply it by its, uh, by zero, and it's still the same. It's like right. when we go in silence, we that's the and that's the reason that that's the only reason why we get to know our source is in a, you know Melville said God's one and only voice is silence when you get to that place and that's why meditation is such an important part of this journey be still and know that i am god right and the question and and that's interesting you say it that way be still and know that i am god now ask yourself the question who is the i am Hmm. who's the i am that is saying that and that's the name of god i am you know that's the name that uh, was given to moses you know at mount sinai you know, when the burning bush was not being consumed. what who Who is it that is telling me to go and free my people? My name, says God. My name is I am that I am, and that shall be my name for all future generations. So every time you say the name I am, you're saying the name of God. So you want to be careful and not blaspheme and say I am weak, or I am sad, or I am depressed, or I am afraid. You know, God couldn't say that. You know, that's blasphemy. I am love. I am perfect love. I am divine love. I am always I am protected. One. Yeah. Beautiful. Oh, uh, I'm speechless. You've done it again. It's very well, rare. Well, I don't even know what we got to, but it was a lot of fun talking. Okay. It was awesome. Well, I, I want to thank you, Dr. Wayne Dyer, for um, for allowing all of us to see clearly now, to, for allowing uh, so so many of us to start to have a new understanding of of what's possible, and and kind of giving this us this hint that there's an opportunity for us to for us to individually reflect back on our lives and see the divine um, the divinity behind each moment that that there was something that was nudging each of us into this very moment here with you. And uh, and I want to I want to thank you for for again saying yes to your burning desire, and bringing forth this wonderful content and inspi- inspiring us also. Do I don't know why I'm welling up so profoundly right now. <laughs> thank you. I just th- I'm so grateful and thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And every time I talk to you, I always think about your dad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He was Ooh, part I, of that trip, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, he was a big part of it. I could have easily written a whole chapter on my relationship with Bob McLean up, up in Toronto, and, and uh, what a great man, you know, yeah. great teacher well, he was. Yeah. Well, thank you, thank you for saying thank that. Thank you, That's sweetheart. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, much love to you, and uh, and much love to all of you for for participating today. We know you have a lot of choices. We're so grateful that you said yes to this show and and showed up. And um, as you show up, you actually guide um, everything that comes through. That co-creative process is something I'm very, very aware of, and I'm and I'm privileged and so honored to to play with you and to love you and to um, and to hang out with you and have you mold my life as we get to mold each other. So, thanks everyone for showing up. Um, until next time, and and thank you again, Wayne. Um, have a wonderful life. And God and bless you, my dear. God thank bless you. you. Bye now. Namaste. And remember. If you'd like to join us for any of our live shows, just register absolutely free at hwtmpodcast.com. That's h 
WTM, as in Healing with the Masters, podcast.com. Come and join us. Just register for the current live season.